Today we have a special talk with Russell Delman from The Embodied Life. The Embodied Life programs are an integration of the teachings of Moshe Feldenkrais, Zen-based meditation, and guided inquiry. They are practices based on learning to be present with the reality of our inner experience in an open, authentic, and curious way. This was a thoroughly enjoyable talk, as Russell is an example of the kind of person who truly walks the talk. His calm demeanor and authentic inquiry, combined with many years of experience, are really able to not just be heard, but also felt in this conversation. And with that, I'll finish up this intro so you can experience what I'm speaking about for yourself. Hi, Russell. How are you doing today? I'm well. I'm well. Enjoying all this time at home. Uh, Oh, there comes Nikki in. Well, I'll tell you how how I got interested in in you, um, or not interested, how I got turned on to you was um, I was in doing my Rolf training, and there was actually one of the Embodied Life uh, CD series in our library. And I, I took it home and listened to it. And it, it really resonated with, um, I had been doing Feldenkrais before, and I had been a meditation practitioner. And one of my meditation teachers had blended sort of yoga with um, some of Gene uh, Genlin's felt sensing approach into that. And so my whole practice actually was where I was, was figuring out this sort of balance of, of a lot of what uh, your practice does and so much more. And it just, it really resonated with me. Um, and then I heard you speak some other places. Yeah. Uh, and it, um, it, it's wonderful work. I would at some point really love to dive into the actual training. Um, yeah, yeah. The right moment. The right moment. Um, yeah. How was your retreat this past weekend? Uh, it was, well, it was a week long retreat and it was, uh, uh, really wonderful. I'm, I'm so uh, kind of shocked that the medium works. Uh, I've, you know, as someone who is um, works so much from embodiment, so much from intuition, so much from direct contacts, body to body with people, um, I've been really so pleasantly surprised that the virtual world of uh, Zoom seems to, in certain settings, really create connection. Hmm. And uh, there were enough people, we had, I guess, about 35, 38 people, something like that. And there were enough kind of core group who had worked with me who were, um, that I think they were able to help create a deepened container. So we all went quite deep, it turned out. Hmm. yeah, I'm very pleased with it. It's it's somewhat exhausting to be on Zoom for so long. I yeah. hear this expression, Zoom fatigue, and I can attest for it. Um, you know, we were doing mostly four-hour day, two hours in the morning, two in the afternoon, and um, I can I, I can understand how how that works, but it was very satisfying. I would say two-hour stints is what I'll probably do going forward unless, you know, maybe a few days longer, but mostly two hour days. And um, what else can I say? Uh, 
it's yeah, it's so funny. I don't I don't know what your ages are, but our daughter is here. Um, she's thirty one, and uh, we've had this ongoing conversation for years, um, where we you know she's very much into social media that we have not been into, and um, she's saying, "Well, Dad, you know, we I mean, she she is also into our work, so she does her own version. She does a lot of social justice work." But she says, you know, you can really get connected in this virtual world, Dad. It's really, you know, it's not what you think. It's mm-hmm. not that I know they're not my real friends that we call each other friends, but but there, there's a way you can connect. And um, so she's up here. And now that she has to do all her stuff online and can no longer do it in person, she goes, I really feel how different it is not being able to be with people. Mm. And we're saying to her, we're really getting how the internet <laughs> can connect you. <laughs> That's funny. So we're celebrating our uh, opposite experience. <laughs> yeah, and meeting in the middle. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's great. Yeah. That's yeah. great. Well, Russell, I'm Nikki coming from Boulder, Colorado, and it's nice to... All right to meet you and I, I think that's really interesting what you pointed out with the nature of our work of body workers and I think it's probably true across many many industries but there is this interesting dance between finding connection that what we used to have with being more in person to maintaining it in this virtual world and how it still works in a way. And I think it's a power of, of our, of our words and our, in our face. I think the beauty of zoom is that you still get to, to see facial expression. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's part of, I I think so far, I I don't have a large enough sample to really know if this is simply a theory or if I have evidence, but I think, I'm sensing there's a difference when I'm interacting with people who've done some homework in basic embodiment or presence or something, and those who are uh, more like much of the culture, more like talking heads, Hmm. and that there's a different vibe. And it's a little harder to connect. I mean, great for technical information, but, but harder to connect deeply. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's um one thing I've I've sort of seen is a lot of technical information now where people much like myself were working more in person and and have to change the medium and some people doing much more technical but missing the embodied aspect of it. Um and it's so it's so important and um for for us at least where our education has has brought us to see um and to to sort of go the opposite uh to say when I'm in classes online and seeing people who are the talking heads and can almost sense this, like what you're saying, your words doesn't match your body. It doesn't match the the movements, the, the expression. Um, I actually, I have trouble absorbing that information more, whereas someone might be giving me less technical information, but it comes out of this felt experience and it, it, Right. In my processing, I, I I really land that information more. Um, and yeah. yeah, yeah, that's that's really true. Our, uh, you know, there's like different kinds of cues for our nervous system. We still get, and I think 
part of the fatigue is we're we need to be more attuned to certain avenues of stimulation because we're not getting many others. Like you can't see the rest of my body. You can't see, um, you know, you can see my facial expressions somewhat, um, not quite like live, but pretty good. And you can hear the tone of voice again, not quite live, but uh, pretty good. Um, but the, there are many other more subtle cues occurring that are harder to sense. So you have to work harder hmm. at the avenues of, of information that are there. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I'm a little curious about how, how, um, how it all came to be, because for, for me, like I was saying earlier, what you offer, it makes total sense, but I, I have never seen anyone else offering uh, your approach and you're welcome with some people who listen to this will will know who you are and what you do and some will be learning right now so um, anything you want to say about that the big area First thing I want to do is I want to question your question are you a little curious because if you're only a little curious I'm not going to go into it but if you're really curious I'm happy to <laughs> um, I, I, both. I am exceedingly curious. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm actually exceedingly curious. This is like, um, this is a, yeah. Um, the people listening, I think they will, um, they'll get what they, they can always fast forward. Right. Fast forward if this gets too boring. So uh, the quick, um, the quick history. Um I'm looking at which version, and so I'm editing, and I'm going to, uh, oh, let's leave that out. Let's go there. Yeah, so very early insight, um, uh, I would say I, I can mark it at about 18 years old, um, partially from a broken heart, partially from... Um, being interested already in, uh, I was studying psychology in college. I entered college at 17 and I was studying. And um, I happened to have a professor who was also interested in humanistic psychology and human potential psychology, which back in 69, 70 was not so common. And I immediately took to a track of uh, kind of the farther reaches of human beings. It was just something that drew me. And the, the broken heart, some psychedelic experiences, some, um, all led me to realize that I was um, not present most of the time in my life. And it was a shocking realization to discover for the first time that I spent 99% of the time talking to myself with the internal dialogue and what I was going to do and what I did do and what I should have said. And um, should I say hello to her? What will she say? Should, you know, all of that. And um, it was rather shocking when the uh, awareness grew to the point that I could see how unaware I was. And so um, the coincidence or karma in the moment I was got to read an article of Suzuki Roshi, Shunryu Suzuki, who was a Zen master from Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. Right. And it just went right to me. And the next day I started to meditate. And I sat 
every day on my own for five years without a teacher. And so that's clearly some kind of history that I don't know about that Hmm. because lots of people might've had my same experience, but not had that same result. So that led me to being very curious about being present, how the mind works. And, and again, an immediate intuition uh, that when I was in my body, I was present and that my mind was nuts and my feelings were all over the place and I couldn't trust them as a way of getting here, getting present. But if I could tune into my butt on the seat and the temperature in my hands, I could get here. Hmm. And that became like a saving grace for uh, some kind of sanity. And so I began, so I didn't have all that articulated, but I had that sense. So I started to study yoga at 19. I was meditating every day and I did gestalt therapy. And I, so I was doing all things around being present and I got the body connection and got trained as a yoga teacher when I was 20. And uh, so, so I was already into a variety of stuff, which back in the early 70s was not quite like it is today. It was more unusual. And um, yeah, so then before I met Moshe Feldenkrais, which was in 1975, um, I was already guiding people in a kind of awareness of feelings in the body, um, in meditation, in yoga. I was already doing something like what I'm doing today, but in a much more primitive form. And then um, I met Feldenkrais, trained with him, and was really identified in the world, in the professional world and in personal world as a Feldenkrais teacher and Feldenkrais trainer. I was one of the first people that he chose to lead trainings when he was dying. And I was very close with him. And... um, so I was a Feldman, I ran trainings around the world. That was the beginning of my travels. And all the time in my private practice, I would have a few people who wanted to learn meditation or a few people would be also interested in looking at how their anger and their back were related, things like that. And so I began to run a parallel program. I would do my Feldenkrais trainings and next to it, would be the beginning, this is in the 90s, of the embodied life trainings. Not, not trainings, embodied life retreats and seminars. And so because it would not have been appropriate to teach meditation and work with the feelings the way I do in a Feldenkrais training, I separated them, although they were very much overlapped. Right. And uh, yeah, so it was out of that that over time... I led Feldenkrais trainings until I think 2008, helped train close to 3,000 people around the world. And um, I asked myself the question in one of these wonderful, insightful um, times with myself, if I had five years left to live, where would I be? What would I be doing different? And I realized I would be just teaching the embodied life because that's my life teaching. So I made what at the time was a big move because 
90% of my, uh, 80% of my income was Feldenkrais trainings. The rest was private practice. And I started to make the shift over. And um, so that's what I've been doing since. So for those who don't know, the embodied life is this integration of sitting meditation that is based in the Zen tradition, but it's uh, taught in a different flavor, I would say, what I call embodied meditation. There's work with the inner life, with our feeling life, our emotions, but also um, anything, how how our inner life communicates, what I call the wisdom body, how to learn the language that lives within our, within our belly, within our chest, within ourselves, which owes a great debt to the work called focusing developed okay. by Eugene Jenlin, but I was actually doing before I met his work. Hmm. Uh, grew out of a number of traditions. And um, then the third leg is the Feldenkrais work and other movement work that I've developed over the years. And so those three, uh, sitting meditation, movement work, and work with the inner life, uh, are the three-legged stool that the work sits on. Yeah, Yeah, as I said earlier, I I find it, um, without being too much of a fanboy, I I find it pretty amazing. I, I love listening to... Uh, and you have, I think, two? You have two sets of CDs? Yeah, there are two sets of CDs. There's um, two sets of DVDs. Um, and um, we also now have two books my wife put together. She also teaches in, in the school now. And um, a book, we developed this series of standing gestures that are very powerful that came to me out of some meditations about 15 years ago. And she developed a book booklet of those with hand-drawn pictures. Mm-hmm. And then there's a book called Movement Essentials of the Embodied Life School that is a couple of hundred pages of uh, some of the things we do at seminars and retreats and stuff. It was began as a gift or that's not right, began as a response to embodied life teachers who've graduated my program and they needed more material support. I have not devoted myself to helping them so much. I just teach. But Linda, my wife, really took the practices, put them into a form that could be a reference for them. And then so many of our other students who haven't trained with us are saying, oh, wow, can I get that? I love doing those at seminars and stuff. So then we just made it available to everybody. Well, I'll highly recommend the CDs that I've listened to, but I'm sure everything else is like is just really wonderful and a really great way to to start to get into the the core of being. Uh, and peeling the layers off um, that are constructed. Well, you know, I I feel so very lucky, actually, Andrew. It's like um, to be able to sit with oneself. You know, I think people think of meditation, oh, I've got to have a quiet mind. Mm. I have to stop. And that's unfortunate associations. It's what is it like to become your own best friend? What is it like to sit with your own body and mind and not be so reactive, not trying to fix yourself, but actually be a place of acceptance and of shining the light on what appears. And Mm -hmm. once one can do that in meditation and then be able to do that in movement, to be able to 
There are things you can learn in movement that you can't learn in, in meditation, things you can learn in meditation you can't learn in movement. And then it's so unfortunate, I think, that so many people who are attracted to meditation are not attracted to movement hmm. or attracted to meditation, but they're not attracted to looking at their emotional life or their communication life or, or their relationships. And so many people who are more psychologically oriented don't want to sit quietly or don't want to do the movement work. And, and so what's a little bit unique in what we're offering is that each of these is approaching different aspects of the human being. We could even say different neural networks in the human being. And yet they're each talking to the same thing. How can you be present with this? How can you be present with your thoughts? How can you be present with your body? How can you be present with your feelings? How can you be present when you're with another person and they're saying things that make you uncomfortable? How can you be present speaking your truth or choosing not to speak your truth? What, how do we bring this awareness practice to all domains of living? And that's, I think, the unique, somewhat unique, I don't want to brag about it, somewhat unique contribution of this work is that it doesn't leave any of those avenues out. So, so most people, when they come to this work, are, are uncomfortable with at least part of it because <laughs> these, these are such different ways of approaching the human being, mm. you know? Until they're not. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. It's just, right, you know, so like, it's so fascinating when um, meditators come in and, and they've got to, you know, I've had a number of Zen monks and all in my programs and when they need to learn how to communicate <laughs> or need to, uh, how to be in touch with the, uh, uh, with the feeling states in a life giving, not just noticing them from a distance, but getting closer to them and, and listening and finding the wisdom that might be living in them or the psychologically oriented and feeling oriented people, how to place less emphasis on their feeling life, how to, how to be more of a witness for what lives in them and less driven by their emotional reactivity. And so everyone has some edge that that's undeveloped. And in our view, um, to be a, an integrated or balanced human being is to get to it. You'll never have all of those equal, but to have them all developed enough. Hmm. Sounds like a great program to shake up your biases. Yeah, it is. It, it truly is a great program to shake up. I mean, one of the core teachings that lives in part of Zen and has been very influential to me is what's called don't know mind. Hmm. Don't know. Rather than going for the, the certainty or the this is the way it is, it's holding things and, and could this... Could the opposite be true? Could that Feldenkrais was brilliant at that. He was, he would say, if you only have two ways of looking at something, then you're stuck. You need at least three, four, or five different ways, and that's why I find it so frustrating. The majority of political conversation or the majority of uh, human interaction is so insecurely looking for certainty that people um, diminish each other, people uh, 
are unwilling to live in the discomfort of uncertainty. And um, that's one of the great learnings of this period of time in our international life, <laughs> is either you're going to learn to live with uncertainty or you're going to suffer a lot. <laughs> yeah. Russell, I'm curious with your deep history with, with all this work, is there something in the timeline that you found was a pivotal shift in, in, in the embodiment work in terms of it being, I don't know, more known or this, mm -hmm. can you just speak to the history of it a little bit? Sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I would say the work that yeah, the work that was being really the seeds that were being watered in the sixties and seventies, mostly in California actually have some ancient roots, of course, that go ancient back to the Greeks, but also more recent ancient, <laughs> where uh, in, in France, in Germany, in Central Europe, in the 20s, in the 30s, there was embodiment work, sensory work, gymnastique douce, the gentle gymnastic, the, where people were starting to listen, starting to listen, but it was a very small subculture. And here, I think the big moves, okay, so if I take a, let me start back here. I think the groundwork was really set very strongly by um, what was called women's liberation, but let's call it a feminist movement back in the 60s and 70s was really, in terms of consciousness, was the shifting toward questioning the dominant uh, paradigm of thinking being the be all and end all and uh, trying to control nature. I, there was a real shift and I really credit a lot of the um, the zeitgeist of feminism, the zeitgeist of questioning authority that was living in the Vietnam era, all of that was a quintessential moment in the 60s that laid the seed, what was the seed work for what then started happening in the early 2000s. The seed work being, let's question things, let's not be so uh, dominated by our left hemispheres, let's um, soften, let's uh, uh, open to our feelings more. That whole set the stage for valuing the body as more than a mechanism, more than something that should be controlled and more as something that might have some livingness and some information in it. So even the neurological research at the end of the 90s was starting to shift like that. And so then, so I think that was the groundwork. And then the big moves were, I think, yoga getting very popular. Um, you know, in terms of the hundreds of thousands of people really opened something to the mainstream more. I think um, 
the the shifting of Buddha Dharma, of the Buddhist teachings into the West, um, also brought in an embodied component that wasn't there so much in the East. Um, so, yeah, I would say somewhere in the, you know, early 2000s was a real mega shift culturally, but the groundwork for it was laid significantly before that. Am I answering what you wanted? Am I getting there? No, yes, that was, that was great. Just. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, it's. Uh, <laughs> I'm curious yeah. in, with <laughs> your, um, in your early pursuit did, in being in California, did Ida, did you have any pathways with Ida Rolf? You know, I, I knew, yeah, you know, we passed each other at Esalon, but <laughs> no interaction. But I, I knew a lot of the early trainees. And uh, um, one of my teachers back in the, when did I meet Robert? Uh, Mid-70s was a very early trained Ralpher, a psychiatrist named Robert Hall, who um was also one of these people like me who liked to integrate things. So he was trained by Fritz Perls in Gestalt therapy, and he was trained by Ida Ralph in Ralphing, and um, put together what was called Lomi School with a couple of other people. And he trained me as a Gestalt in Gestalt therapy for about three years, and so he was important to me, and he was very much working from a holistic and embodied perspective. So he was the main, and when I studied with him and, and did the Lomi School training, um, there was deep body work and all that. It was never my style of work, um, but I was around it quite a bit. Yeah. But the short answer is I didn't know Ida. Mm-hmm. And, and did you ever, I think you more or less, how I sort of heard that, did you ever receive rolfing or get a 10 series done or i never got a 10 series i, yeah. I had uh, oh probably um probably 10 sessions from people trained in rolfing <laughs> but never did a series of work what did you think of it and you can be brutally honest okay. and the sessions could have been brutal themselves <laughs> if, if buddha was a rolfer i'd get rolfed So I believe less in methods and more in people. Mm. And I question a lot uh, what people think they're doing and what they're actually doing. So I think the descriptions that most people place from acupuncturists to Feldenkrais people to Ralphers to even sometimes to surgeons is... Um, that there's a real gap between one's description of what they think is happening in the person and what they're actually communicating to that organism. And I think the majority of that communication happens uh, outside what they think they're doing. 
That's just to confuse your listeners, Andrew. <laughs> no, it's um, I, we uh, Nikki herself is a Rolf move, movement practitioner. I'm on the way to going that way. Um, Judith Lasseter, Judith um, Aston was. I knew her back in back in the day. Back in the Esalen day. She, depending who you ask, she is one of the mothers or found founders of Rolf movement. There's. There's a lot of legacy stories and this and that, that, um, but yeah, she's an integral part of that. Um, I mean, yeah. her understanding of movement really, I didn't have that for sure. But and Rolf moving it, movement itself and Nikki were probably better to talk about this has a lot of how I heard you talking about um, some of the, the bio, what we what in Rolf and we call bio uh, psychological aspects of it gets brought into or can be brought more into the um the Rolf movement stuff especially and um i don't know nikki if you since you have more um experience with that if you have more to share or go with are that. you talking about the biopsycho social model yeah yeah um i would say that and um I would say Rolfing definitely is probably shifting a little bit more into of empowering. I think it's probably always originated to be empowering the client to kind of self-orient to health. But in the early days of it with trying to create a system to teach it, it became very method oriented, hence the 10 yeah. series. So, because, you know, Ida Rolf was, Dr. Ida Rolf was doing it, and then she had all these followers, and she right. cultivated it kind of at the end of, end of her life a little bit. So it was kind of like, let's get this 10 series so it's teachable. And, right. again, what my understanding of the history of it is there was an idea that Ida really wanted to, there's the structural aspect, the Rolf movement aspect, and then the the psychology aspect, but all those couldn't get cultivated in her lifetime. And it's the structural work just kind of was developed and kind of has been the, the main holder. But in the Rolf movement, it's coming along, I would think. And with that, I think, is the, the psychological aspect of, of the work. Yeah. I think the Rolf movement is what helps empower the structural work of Speaking, Russell, to what you're saying, that kind of giving the client, putting, putting the client a little bit more in, in the power of their body mm -hmm. and less of the, the rolfer is going to do this to their tissue. Right. So I think, unfortunately, maybe there's a misconception of the, the rolfer is, is doing the work, but ultimately really is wanting to cultivate the the experience for the client to really own it and feel it. And yeah, I think, yeah, I think it, as with so many things, the, uh, the originator is functioning more intuitively and as they try to describe it and teach it, it becomes systematized. And then it's a couple of generations down the road that it unwinds itself and uh, and becomes more of a mess and becomes uh, more people doing it authentically. 
or helpfully, but more people also doing it ridiculously. So you get both, you get that divergence after mm-hmm. a couple of generations, which is necessary in most systems. So, you know, well, there's a cost that. to get it mainstream. Right. Right. And, and just to the evolution of, I mean, Ida, again, I didn't know her from my sense. Um, she was, she worked with her hands and she was a very body oriented and she was not sophisticated psychologically. She was not sophisticated in movement. And that took Judith Aston to bring the movement aspect and some other people over time, Robert Hall being one of them to integrate the emotional realm much more. And so then as that began to grow, you'll get more brilliantly integrated people applying the work in their own ways and more nutty people taking the work in directions that are ridiculous. And so then the system gets known for, uh, depending on who you meet. (laughs) There is an trust people that don't trust systems. There is an old saying about Ida that, that one day she was walking around Esalen and was very grumpy. And someone said, uh, you know, Dr. Rolf, what's, what's, you know, the matter. And she said, people are saying that, you know, Dr. Rolf only wants to work on, on the body. Um, it's not true. It's just all I can get my hands on. Uh, but um, yeah. it sounds like one of the Feldenkrais stories that you never know if it ever really happened, but it's a good story. <laughs> well, they're they're together. Their um, their lineages and their their crossings, and um, you know, I think they both really influenced each other, and yeah. and and. Yeah both in in respect but also competition as far as pushing each other to to go further very much so very i mean feldenkrais you know the hands-on work in feldenkrais method is called functional integration Hmm. and he got that as a little bit of a something towards ida saying you know structure is not where it's at it's about function Hmm. and um so there was a little bit of that going on in the '60s, also. For 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 me, when as a rolfer, I I love Feldenkrais, and I feel that the two of them work very well together. But I, I agree, but I yeah. but I actually really find that when I do what you the when I do your classes, yeah. that works that lands for me better because I think there is more of that the integration through meditation the integration through through exploring the the felt sense stuff as well and i yeah 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 it's you know it's it's um it it sounded like i was making a bit of a joke when i said i trust people but i really want to speak to that because i want to say does name charlotte selver mean anything to you charlotte selver so yeah. she she developed a work called sensory awareness that grew out of elsa gindler in right. germany and um very subtle work in general. Um, and I knew Charlotte pretty well. And she, she was teaching until 102. And um, when she was, you know, say 95 to 100, if she said, come to standing, feel your feet. You'd feel your feet like no one else ever said it to you because of what was behind what was coming out of her. 
And you can tell, you know, all her students could go, oh, yeah, that's, let me get that take. What did she say? Oh, she said, come to standing, um, feel your feet. Okay, got it. I know how to teach that lesson, you know. Hmm. <laughs> but the impact of human beings on human beings <laughs> comes from and to a much deeper place. And so that even can come through on a recording or on a, that where is this coming from and what does it, what resonates within my nervous system, mostly unconsciously, that allows something significant to happen. And I'm, I'm very curious about that because I, and we will run out of time. So if at any point it may be too long, but I, I, when I listen to people like you or, um, Bonnie Bainbridge Cohen, there is something that if someone came in and repeated the same words that you just said, I don't resonate with it the same way. And it's, it is, I'm, I'm not sure what it is. What is it that, that you have, that she has, um, that people respond in that, in that way that, that, that Charlotte um, had that when she would say come to standing would have that effect. I'm not yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I can tell you my, my idea about it. Um, do, do you know the term mirror neurons, mirror yeah. neurons? So, mm -hmm. so we've these neurons that visually respond to others and our bodies resonate. Well, I think there's something similar that's never been identified. We could call it a resonant neuron or a, it, it, it's, it's organisms getting into resonance with each other. And there's something that happens um, through practice, through um, tuning your own instrument that becomes an attunement for others. And it's hard to describe how that happens or what that is, but, and some people have it pretty naturally and they don't have to do a lot of practice with it or something. But in general, the more one uh, develops their capacity for awareness, the more resonant their field can become for others. And I think that's the way. Uh, I think that's the way culture changes. I think that's the way uh, our work, when we're meeting in a class or meeting with others. I think we think what they're getting is what we're saying, but what they're getting is our being and where it's coming from. And that's my opinion. Yeah. I would one hundred percent agree with that. I will humbly admit, in my early years of trying to vote somatic awareness with um, my clients but it was super challenging to try to tap into that and I have a funny story I had a Pilates client who suffered had suffered from a back injury a minor back injury but his family has a history of back injuries and he just refused and he was a young guy and at the time in his probably mid-20s refused to bend over he will never, at that time, would never pick anything up off the floor. He used a little grabber. And I was like, wow, that can't, like, you can't drive that way. Like, he's going to have kids. Like, he's never going to get on the floor and play with his kids. So I was trying to tap into movement experiences that I received. And I was using a, a particular exercise. And I dropped into a, a soft, listening voice, 
complain this was in New York City when I had a practice, so definitely a different vibe going on. And it wasn't a language that I normally used with him. And I was like, let's try something different. And I was just trying to like, you know, calm his nervous system down and to be open to change. And he's like, and I said, in this voice that's not quite familiar for me either. And he's like, Nikki, why are you talking like that? It sounds so weird. And I was just, I thought it was so funny because I also felt very weird because it wasn't my authentic way of cultivating a somatic experience. I was trying to imitate something that I had learned. And so, it, you know, I, it, it was a nice little gut check of where my learning edge was. And as I had done great work of trying to get people to, to move in different ways, but the, the somatic inquiry, I really had to work on. And I, I feel confident that I put some good, some good lessons into play and I'm finally arrived. <laughs> but, arriving. Always arriving. Arri totally always arriving. Always arriving. I can say I've come a long way from that, that moment. But, you know, what a great lesson that client gave me of pushing. You know, I tried something on. It didn't quite work or land the way I wanted. But it really gave me put me to my edge of like, oh, this is something that I can work on. And, and working on it has been such a fun journey because, of course, I had to drop in deeper and, and becoming more embodied. And I think yeah. kind of speaking to that inquiry, what Andrew, I also was curious, but I think some of, some of being able to evoke that experience is that you've done your own work to mm. really develop the language around it. Mm. Yeah. Great. Well, Russell, you've clearly done your work. Um, I could I could sit and talk to you for hours, um, but I don't know if you could talk for hours. Uh, but it, I got to go plant some roses. Yeah. Yeah. And the nice thing, and I'm I'm not that far away. We finally have some nice weather out here on the East Coast. It shouldn't be too cold. Right. My my wife bought these roses, and it's my job to put them in the ground. So. <laughs> well. Um, I think we can let you leave at that. Um, Nick, do you have anything else you want to ask before we politely? No, it was a real pleasure to speak with you and thank you for taking time to talk sure. to us. Yeah. It was a joy. Take good yeah. care. Stay <laughs> healthy. Enjoy your life. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks again to Russell Delman. I cannot recommend Russell or his embodied life training program enough. You can find more about Russell and the Embodied Life programs at russeldelman.com and there will be a link in the description of this episode to make it easier for you just to make sure you have spelling and everything correct and just click a link and there you go. Thanks for tuning in. You can find more information about us at facebook.com slash groups slash touching into presence. All are welcome. And we look forward to sharing more wonderful content with you in the days and weeks to come. Wishing all of you a beautiful day. Thanks. Thanks.